I read recently that so much of our behavior is motivated by the desire to avoid pain. And so, so, much, so many of our choices, so many of the things that we do, think about it, we're trying to avoid pain in some form or fashion. And of course, that's pretty much impossible in our world and in our lives to avoid pain. But there are some pains that can be avoided and some pains that can actually be redemptive in the experiencing. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Hello, I'm Brian Foreman. I'm the pastor of Cornerstone. Welcome to Cornerstone Online. This is our weekly experience where we inspire and equip you to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, knowing that following Jesus makes life better and makes you better at life. If you're new here, we would love to be able to welcome you personally and to stay in touch with you, let you know what's going on with Cornerstone and uh, give you resources as you go down your spiritual journey. And so if you are new here, I hope that you will start here. Text the word new, N-E-W, to 603-225-2550 to let us know who you are. So as we said, today we are talking about pain and we're in a series going through the letter of 1 Peter. And what we're going to say is that a little suffering can save a lot of grief. A little suffering saves a lot of grief. That there are certain, uh, suffering is inevitable, but we get to choose our path. And when we choose, uh, sometimes there's a little bit of suffering involved, but it can avoid a lot of grief. And what we hope to do, the practical step that I'll unpack a little bit later is to put our pains in perspective. So like I said, we're looking at the book of First Peter in our series called Insider Outsider. Outsider Insider, actually. And uh, we are in the fourth chapter now. So I'm going to read to you from verse 1 to verse 11. We're going to focus in on the first half of this this week and then dig a little bit deeper in the second half next time. So I'm going to read from the New Living Translation if you'd like to follow along. So then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. For if you have suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your lives chasing your own desires, but you will be anxious to do the will of God. You have had enough in the past of the evil things that godless people enjoy, their immorality and lust, their feasting and drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols." Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. But remember, they will have to face God who will judge everyone, both the living and the dead. That is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the spirit. Verse 7. The end of the world is coming soon. Therefore, be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. Cheerfully share your home with those who need a meal or a place to stay. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. 
Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have given us your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the redemptive purposes that you have in pain. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to choose to live for the will of God, for the purposes that you have for us, knowing that although sometimes suffering is involved, even when right is done, that it's a far better choice than the alternative. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to put our pain in perspective, to see it through your eyes, to see the redemptive purpose that you have in it, as we can see in the life of Jesus himself. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to each person exactly what they need to hear today, that through your spirit, through your word, and through your people, you would meet the needs that are present in each person who is listening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So to put this in context, we really need to look at what the Apostle Peter was saying right before this. Uh, in, and remember, the context for this whole letter is outsider insiders, that he's speaking to followers of Jesus who for the most part are on the outside of the power struggles, power structures of this world and as a result are being mistreated. They're suffering oppression. They're uh, encountering opposition. And he writes to tell them that even though that's the case, even though that you're an outsider in the power structures of this world, that actually you are insiders as a part of the family of God and as citizens in his kingdom. And that impacts the way that you live. And in particular, the way that you deal with those people in power, the people in authority over you. And he's encouraging them overall to just do the right thing and entrust the results to God. Because the temptation would be to try to take things in your own hands and to return evil for evil, to be conniving, to be duplicitous, to do whatever it takes to rest back control. And he's saying, no, that's not the way you do it. You I acknowledge the authorities that are over you. As long as it's not disobeying God, you do follow their lead and then you just entrust the results to him. So as a result, sometimes they were suffering, but he says it's better to suffer by doing right than by doing wrong. So last week, that's exactly what he starts out with. This is first Peter three seventeen. Remember, it's better to suffer for doing good. If that's what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. And then he says, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. In other words, you're faced with opposition. You're being treated unjustly. You still choose to do the right thing. You can choose to do the wrong thing and you're going to suffer for it, but that's what you kind of get when that happens. But when you do the right thing and suffer for it, there is uh, then at least you've done the right thing. And God has promised that if you suffer for doing what is right, he will reward you for it. And then he used Jesus as an example of someone who did right, still suffered, but God made it right in the end. This is 1 Peter 3.18. Christ suffered for our sins 
once for all time. He's talking about the substitutionary atonement that Christ died, he suffered for our sins so that we might be forgiven. So, uh, and it says he never sinned. Christ was without sin. He didn't deserve the punishment that he received, but he died for sinners to bring them safely home to God. In other words, the unjust suffering You're experiencing unjust suffering right now. But as a follower of Jesus, that's kind of what you would expect because he experienced unjust suffering also. The end result was the salvation that you now enjoy. And so we talked about how doing the right thing will ultimately be rewarded. Now, this week, what the Apostle Peter does is he takes that example of Christ and then applies it to our lives. So at the beginning of this passage, 1 Peter 4, 1, it says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, and uh, some of your Bibles might even make a note that when it's talking about suffering, it's talking about a specific type of suffering, the death of Christ. So he says, Christ has died. He suffered in the flesh. So also you must arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had. If you're going to follow Jesus, then you're going to learn his ways. And what was his approach to suffering? That he was willing to suffer rather than sin. That was, that was his approach. He would suffer, he would do right, and if that meant suffering, then he would do that up to and including the point of death in his struggle against sin. And so he says, you must arm yourselves with the same attitude that he had. That arm yourselves, it's the same picture as a soldier putting on his armor, uh, taking up his arms, getting ready for battle. Uh, you, Jesus, steeled himself for the suffering that was to come. And as a follower of Jesus, you're going to have that same attitude. So this little bit of suffering saves a lot of grief. We can see that in Jesus' life because he went and uh, to the cross, suffered that tortuous death on the cross, but the end result was the salvation that is offered to everyone, that we can be forgiven of our sins included in God's family. And then he goes on and says, basically, use this as a pattern, have the same attitude that Christ did, because the one who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Uh, I think that what he's saying here, as I put it in context and have thought it through, it's like, okay, well, what is he saying? The one who has suffered in the flesh, remember, When suffered in the flesh was used of Christ, it was talking about death. And then you have ceased from sin. So if you die, then there's no more sinning going on because you have died. Uh, Now, obviously, we have not died. So what is he talking about? Now, interestingly enough, in the end of the passage from last week, he Peter was using the illustration of Noah and the salvation that he experienced in the ark going through the flood as a parallel to the salvation that we experience symbolized by baptism going through the waters of baptism. 
what does baptism symbolize? When we put people under the water, we are symbolizing that they were dead and buried with Christ, that they were dead in their trespasses and sins. Then we lift them out of the water, identifying them with the resurrection of Christ and the new life that he gives. That's the imagery that is in Peter's mind because he has just talked about it. And then he says, the one who has suffered in the flesh died according to the flesh has ceased from sin. I think it's baptism imagery that he's still leaning into saying that as a follower of Jesus, you were dead and buried and now you've been raised to life. So in the same way that Jesus fought against sin, suffered on the cross, so all to the point of dying, then so also spiritually you who were dead have now been made alive. And so there's a sense in which we are done with sin. The time for sinning is over with because we were died. We have died. We were buried with Christ and now raised to walk in a new way of life. Now, obviously, that does not mean that every believer, every follower of Jesus is sinless and doesn't make any mistakes. No, that's not what it means. Obviously, from our experience, we know that that's not the case. But the direction of our life has changed. That if there's a willingness to suffer, to choose to do right, as opposed to avoid suffering, then you're kind of done with sin. If you're willing to suffer to avoid sin. And he says in the big picture of things, spiritually speaking, you are dead to sin. That's the way the apostle Paul describes the same kind of thing that Peter is talking about here. So arm yourselves with the same perspective that Jesus had, willing to suffer to overcome sin because a little suffering will save a lot of grief. And I think the first point that I want to make here is this, that sin is destructive. That's what we're going to see in this first part of the passage. And the reason this is important is because God loves us. Here's what I mean by that. I sometimes think that we get the picture that God has come up with this arbitrary list of things to do and not to do. And he's going to arbitrarily call them some of these things sin and some of these other things good. And the only thing that makes it good or bad is God arbitrarily, arbitrarily deciding it. But I think that it's a lot more, it it makes a lot more sense than that description that yes, God is the one who defines what is right and what is wrong. And the original sin was wanting that power for ourselves. The knowledge of good and evil is that idea that God, you don't get to choose what's good and evil. I'll decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. But the thing that makes sin destruct sin is its destructiveness. It's it it hurts people. It hurts others. It's destructive to relationships and to people. And that's what makes sin so heinous and why God hates it so much because he loves us and he doesn't want us to experience 
the detrimental effects of sin. So <clears throat> we see this in the second verse of this chapter. Uh, so what are you going to do? So as to live the rest of time, you uh, arm yourself with the same attitude as Christ, be willing to suffer in your, to avoid sin. Why? Because sin is destructive. God loves you. He doesn't want that for you. Uh, and so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, in your life, your, the rest of your life, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. In other words, you are going to spend your time pursuing the desires of your flesh or the will of God. And now is the time to choose for the will of God. Uh, what he's, uh, he's, he's going on to talk about the rest of time versus time enough. And we won't read it again, but in that passage that we just read, it said, you know, you've spent enough time already just following the urges of your flesh, just doing what you want to do. And, uh, there's a particular way that it's described and uh, I want to highlight this from verse 4a. Of course, your former friends, what he's saying is this was your habit, so you just kind of did it. It was, there was peer pressure involved because everybody else was doing it as well. So if you change, you're going to be going against that tide. Of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things that they do. Uh, it was it was just easier because you avoided immediate suffering, although there were destructive uh, effects afterwards. It was your habit. It was what you were used to doing, and there was peer pressure involved. But this uh, this plunging into the flood, I think, is also you know reminding us of the flood imagery, talking about Noah that he was using in that previous passage. But the what is it? The flood of wild and destructive things they do. It's just really one word there, and it's uh, it's a word that's made up of negating the good. And so, uh, like atheist, you add that a on the begin. I don't believe in God. A theist believes in God. An atheist doesn't believe in God. Well, the same kind of thing is going on with here. There's an a at the beginning of this word, and it's talking about. Uh, this is not redemptive, not the kinds of things that make for salvation, not the kinds of things that do good and have a good beneficial impact on your life. Sin is destructive. In fact, it's the same word that's used, and this is insightful, in Ephesians 5.18, where it says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. <clears throat> that's the word that's being translated here. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So this pictures two kinds of life. And this whole passage in 1 Peter is full of all of these different kinds of contrasts. So he likens being drunk on wine in contrast to being filled with the Spirit. And uh, many of you, if you've been a part of Cornerstone for any period of time, will have heard me talk about this verse before. When you get drunk, you have the alcohol in control of your life. It's the controlling influence in your life. And so you do things that you wouldn't normally do, things that are dumb, 
things that are stupid, things that lead to destruction. And that's what he's talking about here. If instead you are filled with the Spirit, then God's Holy Spirit is the controlling influence in your life. As a result, you do things that you wouldn't normally do, but these are things that are good and beneficial. And as a result of that, you experience those benefits. So the contrast that Peter is painting here is a person who is controlled by uncontrolled impulses. To live in the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, is to just be trying to avoid pain, masking pain in however you want. And it's that avoidance of pain that actually ends up being more painful in the end. And so he gives a contrast. He's like, if you're a follower of Jesus, you died to that life. You now are living a new life. The time that you spent when you were spiritually dead, just letting your uncontrolled impulses be in charge of your life, that time is over. You spent more than enough time doing that. Now, the rest of your time in this life should be given over to the will of God. And as a result, that little bit of suffering, of saying no to your flesh, of following Jesus, being willing to suffer, arming yourselves with that same attitude that Christ had, willing to suffer in order to overcome sin, will in the long haul save you a lot of grief. And the other thing that he points out in that line is that judgment is coming. So, it's not without cost. To be controlled by your uncontrolled impulses might seem at first to be easier, but there's a price to pay for it, and ultimately judgment is coming. So the Apostle Peter says, but one day they will have to give an account. There's a judgment. There's a giving an account that's coming to the one who is destined to judge the living and the dead. And that's, of course, talking about Jesus. So he's saying, in contrast to your old life and the people that you used to hang out with, just doing their thing and following the uncontrolled impulses of their flesh and everything that all the destructive behaviors and consequences that come from that, not only Will they suffer in that way? But there's also going to be a time where we have to give an account for our lives. There's a judgment that is coming. And then he pivots to the good news. In 1 Peter 4, 6, it says, that is why the good news was preached to those who are now dead. So what is the good news? The good news is the message about Jesus Christ. And what's the message about Jesus Christ? It's who Jesus is, that he was the perfect sinless son of God. What he did, he lived a perfect life, and then he went to the cross and suffered a death he did not deserve. And then what is the consequence for us? Because he was willing to suffer that death, then we were able to receive salvation. We are allowed to say yes to him and allow his death on the cross to count for us. That's the good news. And Peter is saying that even people who have died, they heard the good news. And when they received it, 
even though they experience the suffering of death, they are still going to experience the benefits of new life in Christ. So it says, so although they were destined to die like all people, they now live forever with God in the spirit. They were judged in the flesh. They died. It literally says judged in the flesh, just like all people. But now they live in the spirit with God. So they experience the curse of the fall, which is death, but they also experience the benefit of the grace of God, which is life. And here would be a good time to invite you to do the same. So if there's never been a time where you have said yes to Jesus, not just know something about Jesus, not go to church, not what your parents did, not what your parents did for you when you were a child, not some religious hoop that you jumped through. Has there ever been a time where you have turned your life over to Christ, surrendered your life to him, said yes to him, Yes, I want what you did on the cross to count for me so that my sins might be forgiven. Yes, I want to declare my allegiance to you, to uh, align myself with you, to call him Lord and Master, meaning he gets to be the boss. He gets to call the shots. When you do that, yes, there's suffering is inevitable. It's going to happen. But he's going to use that suffering in a redemptive way in your life. He has used the, just as he used the suffering of Christ to bring you new life in Christ. So say yes to him. When you do, you experience the forgiveness of sins. All of your sins will be placed, have been placed on Christ. And so you are free from the consequences, the punishment of that sin. When you say yes to Jesus, He gives you direction and guidance. His Holy Spirit will reside in you and you have the opportunity to be filled with the Spirit for His Holy Spirit to be the controlling influence in your life. And although there is a little bit of suffering, you save a lot of grief in the end. If you're saying yes to Jesus, please let us know so that we can celebrate with you. This is the best decision you will ever make in your entire life. And let us resource you. Let us help you to grow in your faith. You can let us know by texting yes, the word yes, to our church number 603-225-2550. All right. Now, it's talked about judgment, that there's a cost to pay. And then he revisits that theme in verse 7 when he says the end of the world is coming soon. What's he saying there? That everyone is going to live until... Uh, uh, then you're going to die or the end of the world is going to come and that's when you'll have to give an account when you are going to be called on the carpet and give an account for your life and for those who have not accepted Christ then the judgment is going to fall on them for those who have accepted Christ you will escape the condemnation of God because Jesus took the penalty for you. Now, this was written nearly 2,000 years ago, so I think it's important to explain what it, uh, how we understand this. Now, they expected Christ to return the end of the world at any time, as have every generation of faithful Christians since. 
like with great confidence, I can tell you that we are closer now to the return of Christ than we have ever been before. However, that does not mean that it's, he was not, he is not saying here, obviously, that it's going to happen tomorrow. It didn't. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow. It may or it may not. But the idea, it literally says that the end of all things is near. It's near. It's imminent. And the way I've described that before is that everything is in place. We've walked to the very edge of history. Everything is in place. Everything has been done. There's nothing between us and eternity. And for now, over almost 2,000 years, we've been walking along the edge. At any point, Christ could return and we could step off into eternity. And even if that doesn't happen anytime soon, as we would understand soon, the reality is that all of us are right on the edge. Our lives are but a mist. We're not going to last forever. Our lives could end at any time. So eternity is near. And so when you have that perspective, you're going to live in a certain way. So a little bit of suffering. You're not going to be able to avoid suffering entirely, but if you're willing to suffer a little bit to avoid sin, then you're going to save a lot of grief. And what he has done is outlined the kind of life that uncontrolled impulses will lead you to, a destructive life, a life that's full of grief. And then he's going to present an alternative. He says there are better things to do. So choose that instead. At the beginning, it's like you're going to spend the rest of your life either pursuing the lust of the flesh or the will of God. There are better things to do. Choose them. So he says in verse seven, therefore be earnest and disciplined in your prayers. I think of that as kind of leaning in to your relationship with your heavenly father. What are you doing to nurture that relationship? What are you doing to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ, as Peter encourages us to do. So lean into that relationship. The idea there is like a taut line. It's not letting any, don't slack off in this. Uh, if you've ever been water skiing, you've been taught to keep that line between you and the boat tight. Don't let it slack because then it's, when it does get tight, you're going to be, you're going to be knocked over. You're going to be pulled over by that. You keep it tight. And that's the kind of picture that he's painting here. Don't let any, don't slack off. Keep up your relationship with your heavenly father? Are you reading God's word? Are you in a small group? Are you showing up for church? Do the kinds of things that are going to help you to lean into your relationship with your heavenly father. And then he tells us to lean into our relationship with one another as well. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. We talk all the time about how Jesus gave us the one new commandment, the prime directive for his followers to love one another. 
10, then he gives us the standard, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And this is echoed throughout the New Testament, including here. Continue to show deep love for one another. This is the same theme that he's returned to from chapter 1, verse 22, when he told us to love each other deeply with all your heart. He uses some of the same words in this. He's returning to that theme. And then he says, for love covers a multitude of sins. I didn't know this until this week, but he's actually, because this is a very familiar verse to me, a very familiar phrase, he's actually echoing something from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. In Proverbs ten twelve, it says, hatred keeps old quarrels alive, but love draws a veil, puts a cover over every insult and finds a way to make sin disappear. Lean into your relationship to your heavenly father and lean into your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't let unforgiveness, don't let past hurts or quarrels or difficulties separate you love is going to just overlook those things sometimes and not make a big deal about them to go on to pass them over. And then he says, each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. In other words, you're going to lean into your relationship with your Heavenly Father. You're going to lean into your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And as part of that, you're going to be a conduit of God's grace, of His goodness to the people around you. How do we do that? That's what we'll talk about next week. So here we go. A little suffering saves a lot of grief. You're going to suffer Choose this suffering that is redemptive. Choose to do the right thing, even if it means suffering, and leave the results to God. And what that helps us to do is to put our pains in perspective. We started out by talking about how often we are motivated by avoiding pain. But the reality is you're not going to be able to avoid all pains. So, Choose your pains wisely. Put your pains in perspective. Recognize that choices are going to result in pain one way or, or another. So choose the one that's going to be the lesser pain over the long haul. That does the, uh, the most immediate way to avoid pain is often the one that is going to result in the greatest pain in the long term. So choose to do the right thing, even if it involves suffering, you'll avoid destruction, you'll have a clear conscience, and you'll free yourself up to live for the better purposes that God has in mind for you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that as we make our choices each day, that we would recognize that pain in this world and in this age is unavoidable, but to just do the right thing anyway entrust the results to you and live our lives not according to the uncontrolled impulses of our flesh, but according to the will of God, that the Holy Spirit would be the controlling influence in our lives. Show each of us, I pray, exactly what we need to do with what we've heard today, and then give us the courage and strength to choose accordingly. And may you be glorified and honored and may 
your love be spread to others through us as a result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.